another pot of coffee is brewing. My fifth cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. I'm not sure how it's happened, I really am not, but we're nearly at the close of the second week of the year. So far, I'm not noticing a massive difference, what with lockdown number three in the UK. My niece is currently in isolation as she works with someone who tested COVID positive, and I am still having virtual coffees with my friends. But that's not what this episode is about. This week, I watched a film that is more likely suited to spy hards, in that it is sort of a spy movie? Well, in that two characters are spies at least. I have been doing my reading for this year's Goodreads challenge and this week alone I purchased 10 new books God, and pre-ordered about six more. But the book I'm talking about this week is actually one I finished towards the end of last year and of course I'm going to be talking about my mental health week and how my new self-improvement project is going. But Before that, it's time for the first 2021 instalment of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. (laughs) Because why wouldn't they be? I have to be honest, the last few weeks have been really sparse when it comes to dreams. At least ones I've remembered. I could be dreaming about loads of amazing stuff and wake up and have no recollection at all. However, I was incredibly surprised to wake up this Sunday morning, yay, with a dream so clearly in my mind that I had to write it down as soon as I kicked the covers off. And I have taken to actually lying in my bed and kicking the covers off as a way of getting my circulation going in the mornings because I'm five years old again, apparently. For some reason, I'm in a large ballroom or a hall of some kind and I'm watching as a group of workmen set up a stage at one end of the room. My mum comes up behind me and says that though it doesn't look like it's going to happen because everything's still actually being done, the stage and everything else will be ready for the boy band that is due to be performing at our hotel that night. Yes, for some reason, I am running a hotel. And I have no idea what goes into running a hotel, but apparently I'm doing a lot of the work. Anyway, my two sisters come in. Both are really pretty, and if the comments that they're making are anything to go by, they're incredibly flighty. Now, this is where it probably, for me, got really strange, as I have a brother and a sister, not two sisters, If I'd had two sisters, then maybe I'd have had my own room growing up and I wouldn't have hated living at home quite so much. Anyway, they start talking about how they're going to get dressed in their best clothes and flirt up a storm with these boys in the boy band. They then wave goodbye and head off, leaving me to do all the work. What's new there, apparently, if the dream me and her thoughts are anything to go by? Without any warning whatsoever, my dream then shifts and I'm in a massive arena sitting in one of those horrible, uncomfortable chairs. You know the ones, they're mostly plastic with a tiny bit of padding in the middle of them. And we're at this concert. Oh, and if you hear birds, I really apologise. For some reason, the seagulls around here are incredibly noisy first thing in the morning. 
We're at this concert. I'm sitting between my mum and one of my sisters. And my mum says, oh, we're going to get this band to perform. I'm very doubtful, but clearly she did it if the first part of the dream is anything to go by. I swear everything in this dream moves so quickly that I'm shocked I didn't wake up with whiplash. Back to the present day, after that fantastically helpful flashback, the stage is finished with moments to spare before the band and their musicians arrive to do a sound check. Perfect timing, because this is a dream, so why wouldn't it be? I'm feeling a tiny bit anxious that everything isn't quite right, but that's just me in real life, so of course it would carry into the dream. Sound check is done and one of the band members or the musicians, I don't know which, it doesn't really matter, spots me and heads over to talk to me about being there and really happy. But being honest, that's all I recall from the conversation. All I do remember is that after the sound check, the entire lot of them head off somewhere else to relax. The concert goes really well and my sisters, again really weird because I have a brother, are absolutely gushing over the band and I feel really embarrassed. I have to admit, I went to boy band concerts when I was growing up or at least when I was 16, 17 years old, I had a massive crush on the only member of New Kids on the Block who turned out to be gay because he was cute and he had a good voice and he seemed really shy and that always appealed to me. And I went to two of their concerts, one very local and one up at Wembley Arena, I think. It was so long ago, I can't remember. The ticket's in my diary. And I couldn't actually talk for two days following either of those concerts. So the screaming and everything is probably my memories of that. You could barely hear them sing, which probably isn't a bad thing in many cases. But I could not speak because I had no voice. My throat was absolutely raw. I invite the band for a drink and by this point I'm having to hold both of my sisters back and the band looks quite unnerved by their actions, probably because they are very close up and they have security passes. They've turned into Samara from The Ring. That's the only way I could think of to explain how insane they've got. You know the girl who crawls out of the screen and has, she's covered in water because she drowned? That one, that's what they're like. The band follow me up to my room and when I open the door, which is a gorgeous red oak, I don't know why my dreams are so detailed on some things and skim over others that could be more important. So the door was red oak. And it's as though I'm stepping into another world, like my room opens up to a TARDIS-like area because my suite is huge. The door opens onto a lobby with plush sand-coloured carpet. There's a semicircular table beneath a mirror and at the end of the hall is it opens out onto a massive living room with a stunning view. Not that you can actually see much because it's pitch black outside. At one end of the living room, there is a kitchen area with red and white gloss cabinets. And at the other, there is a closed door. So maybe that leads to the bedrooms and the private bathroom or something. I have no idea. As I said, some detail, some not. We all sit down and drinks magically appear. God, I wish that would happen in real life. (laughs) Did it turn into Hogwarts? I don't know. And the next thing I know, it's morning. The band all fell asleep on my sofa and chairs and someone is insanely banging on the sweet door. For some reason, I press a button on the underside of the bar that runs along one wall, because why wouldn't I? 
and a steel door comes down, blocking out the sound of shouting coming from the hallway. With all the sound blocked out, I head back into my bedroom, and that's it. The dream is over. So, I woke up with a few questions. Have I imprisoned the boy band for nefarious purposes? Am I as bad as my sisters in obsession, but better at hiding it? Or is the door easily opened and just a sound buffer? Who knows? (laughs) I certainly do not. Not quite as odd as other dreams that I've had, but it is quite a weird one all the same. This week, I wrote out a very detailed plan for the next 16 weeks of recording, and there are some really special things in there, including a fun episode swap and a special guest. I'll be telling you more about the second one next week. So, there were a few correct guesses when I posted the clue, but to be fair, it was quite obvious, or I think so, on Twitter. So, congratulations have to go out to Griff from The Paul and Griff Show, Danny and Drew from It's a Musical Podcast, and Scott from Spy Hards, who all correctly guessed that I was about to watch This Means War. This Means War came out in February 2012. It was originally due for release on Valentine's Day, but it was moved back a few days because 20th Century Fox, which means it may well be on Disney Plus soon, didn't want the box office to suffer as the tragedy romance The Vow was due for release on the same day. Fox fully expected The Vow to dominate the Valentine's Day box office. I have to be honest here, I keep on seeing it on Prime and Netflix, And I'm not encouraged to press play. So, what was This Means War about? FDR Foster, played by Chris Pine, and Tuck Hansen, played by Tom Hardy, are at a party in a swanky penthouse. And you can tell it's a swanky penthouse because you open the doors and there is a pool on the roof. They meet two women who are clearly interested in them. One is played by Laura Vandervoort, interesting fact, who is from Smallville and Bitten. And... The guys tell them that FDR is a cruise ship captain and Tuck is a travel agent, which then begs the question, how much money do they make as a travel agent and a cruise ship captain? They're about to flirt up some more when their targets arrive. Yes, this is the cliche opening to a spy film. They are after the Heinrich brothers, who were at the party to do a deal with the host. But it all goes sideways incredibly quickly. The host is killed, the brothers are about to get away with the diamonds and the product they were buying, when Tuck and FDR step in. Shots. A lot of shots are fired. Tuck runs out of bullets, and it seems that this is something he does quite often. But never fear, FDR is here. Oh wow, that rhymed. FDR struggles with the younger Heinrich brother, who falls tearing a bit of FDR's exclusive Savile Row suit in the process. Karl Heinrich, the older brother, manages to escape. He takes a bit of time to say goodbye to his brother after he parachutes down from the building and takes the material that his brother was grasping in his hand with him. Because, of course, that is exactly the best way to get revenge. Make a new suit. Lauren Scott, on the other side of town, is a product testing executive. When we first meet her, she is fire testing a product in her lab. That kind of looks fun, though knowing my luck, I would set fire to something that didn't need to be set fire to. She's all business with very little in the way of a social life, which is made much more obvious when her assistant Emily, who is played by Jenny Slate, asks if she can leave early for the holiday weekend because her boyfriend is taking her to an alpine 
alpaca farm. And Lauren had forgotten, A, it was a weekend, and B, it was a long weekend. At the same time as Lauren is watching her colleagues head off for their long weekend breaks, Tuck and FDR are being ripped a new one by their boss, played by Angela Bassett, who is, as always, fantastic, even though her role is pretty tiny in this film. They are meant to be under the radar, but a man falling off a building onto a car is hardly discreet. They get grounded. Yep, exactly like badly behaving kids. They are told you are grounded, which means no missions, everything has to be desk bound. While Tuck and FDR are dealing with the consequences of their actions at the party, Lauren is out on a walk singing along to her MP3 player when she bumps into her ex, Steve, and his new fiancé. Feeling uncomfortable and awkward because Steve has clearly moved on and he is actually the reason she moved to LA in the first place, she tells him that she's dating a doctor called Ken and she's heading off to meet him. Of course... As is with most things, there has to be a reason behind the whole I'm going to be dating somebody thing because it can't just be I want to find someone. And she goes to the sushi, her regular sushi bar and Steve and his fiance turn up. She is all for saying, oh yes, my fiance is going to be sitting, the, my boyfriend, sorry, is going to be sitting in the seat next to me. However, the helpful chef gives away the fact that Lauren is a regular and is always eating a meal for one at the restaurant. I think this is the point where I personally would just put my headphones on and bury my face in a book. But Lauren has dug a pretty deep ditch for herself and she needs to figure out a way out of it. After having sushi, she goes to meet with her friend Trish, who is played by the always crude Chelsea Handler, and she's perfect in the role of a friend who gives bad advice, to be fair. Trish tells her that she needs to get back on the horse and start using online dating, but Lauren's a little bit more, oh, do I really want to do that? I have to be honest, online dating is... It can be great, and it can be awful. It depends on what you're looking for, how old you are, and if you're actually willing and able or have the confidence to stick more than a single toe in a very murky pond. And I'm not saying that all online dating is awful, but my experiences of it have been pretty bad. In fact, I went on a date with somebody who had portrayed themselves as in their late 30s, early 40s, and then when I met them, it turned out they'd been at the 1966 World Cup. Anyway, <laughs> less of my disaster dating stories, let's go, let's move on. The film goes into a little montage here where we find out more about who Tuck and FDR are. First, Tuck and FDR are at a family event at FDR's grandmother's house. And it's at this point we find out that Tuck has a son, Joe, and he is divorced and wants to find somebody. I get the feeling here that Tuck is a little bit of a romantic, perhaps playing up the British Mr Darcy thing a bit with his desire to find somebody and settle down. We also discover that FDR is a serial womaniser, though I don't know why that should be anything of a surprise given the way he was acting at that party. To be honest, the chic suits, the floppy hair and the flirting, they're all key components that go into creating the classic movie ladies' man. We then 
move on and we're at Tuck's son's karate class where Joe is getting creamed on the mat by another kid whose dad is a prime bully. Joe is really happy to see his dad is at the class but tells him that he knows nothing about fighting. At this point, I knew that there would have to be a big reveal of some kind about Tuck's career, but obviously that will come much later, if it happens at all. As, <laughs> according to Joe, he's just a travel agent. We then meet Katie, Tuck's ex-wife. He invites them both out for dinner, but Katie declines as she's got a date that evening. It seems that their marriage didn't work, but there doesn't appear to be any animosity between them. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that there are still feelings there. At least that's the feeling I got. It's, in my mind, Tuck's job or the lack of honesty and clarity about his job caused the split. Tuck is then at his apartment sparring with a trainer when an ad for itsfate.net comes on TV. He's distracted by it for a moment and nearly loses the fight. At his swanky apartment, FDR is watching the same ad, but he kind of laughs it off and thinks it's a joke. When Lauren arrives back at her office after the holiday weekend, everyone is staring at her weirdly, and she has absolutely no idea why, at least until Emily tells her that she needs to check her desktop. It seems that Trish took her comments on online dating to the next level. I'd kill a friend if they did this to me. And set her up with a profile on itsfate.net. Yes, the self-same site that Tuck and FDR saw advertised the previous evening. Well, I'm assuming it was the previous evening anyway. Trish has posted photos of Lauren doing a handstand over a keg and other things that show her to be the life and soul of the party, stressing that she was a gymnast at college and that she's very athletic. Lauren is, understandably, because I don't think I would be either, not amused and phones Trish to tell her that this is not what she wanted and it has to be taken down but at the same time she's going through her apparent perfect matches and sees a picture that is interesting to her and surprise surprise it's Tuck. This timeline seems just a tiny bit screwy to me because at some point clearly though there's no indication of when Tuck and Lauren arrange to meet and it is while Tuck is telling FDR this that his friend is surprised anybody would reveal personal details to strangers on a website. Hang on, though. They're the CIA. Surely having people reveal this kind of stuff is exactly how they get a lot of their information. FDR volunteers to be Tuck's escape call, should he need it. Tuck and Lauren have arranged to meet in the early evening, Again, this is me assuming something because as it's LA, it does stay just a little bit lighter there in the evenings than it does in the UK, though obviously not as late as in Sweden and Alaska during the summer, and they're going to meet at a bar. As Tuck and Lauren are meeting, FDR is walking down the escalator to one of his usual pickup joints, the video store. And here is where I'm sitting there going, video store? It's 2012. Did video stores still exist? Okay, they'd have been selling DVDs or renting DVDs, but at the same time, did they really still exist then? Wasn't there something called Redbox and didn't Netflix do a whole send your DV send you DVDs for rentals at that point? He's on the prowl for another hookup because he doesn't do commitment. His phone dings with a message and it's Tuck telling him that he doesn't need a rescue. 
At the end of the day, Lauren says that she has a movie night planned, so she's going to head to the video store. And unless you've been living under a rock or have never watched a film like this before, you just know that she's going to end up bumping into FDR. Boy, to me, he looks a little bit like a stalker hanging around in a video store long enough for a whole date to have happened somewhere elsewhere. I so called this. I was so chuffed. I watched this and it was like, she's going to meet him at the video store. And sure enough, she did meet him at the video store. I just knew she'd bump into him. I didn't guess, however, that she would rebuff him while calling him out on his dating strategy, highlighting all the girls and their types on the films that they were looking at. This bit could be considered a little bit cliched and also stereotyping, calling the girl in foreign films intense and the girls looking at romance someone who would have picked out their first baby names by the end of the evening. FDR is fascinated. I get the feeling from the way he acts normally that he doesn't normally get turned down or at least doesn't get turned down very often. He's clearly from money, he's educated, has a smooth voice and isn't exactly the worst looking person on the planet. But this woman wasn't interested in him at all. He's also incredibly determined and goes to work and persuades a colleague at the CIA home office to look through the membership files of the video store until he finds Lauren. Now, isn't he the one earlier who was saying, I don't know why anybody would put personal details on a website for strangers to look at. And now he's going through the video store membership details which is a site where people put their personal details or at least have their personal details stored so they can get videos. Well, it seems a little bit counterproductive to me. Anyway, he finds her details and then turns up at her workplace and continually interferes while she is doing a consumer feedback presentation for a product she's been reviewing. He then continues to harass her until she agrees to go on a date with him. I'm not so sure personally that this is a positive message to be giving someone, that if you stalk them and harangue them, they'll agree to anything. But here you're meant to find it charming. I don't know if I do. A few days later, or at least I'm guessing it's a few days later, time has no meaning anymore. Tuck and FDR are at their desks in the CIA office doing research when they explain that they're looking up the new woman in their lives. Or new women in their lives, should I say. He is woman, but we'll get there. They turn their laptops around so each other can see the photos and they are both surprised when it's the same woman, Lauren Scott. Neither are massively happy, but they make a gentleman's agreement consisting of four very important core things in their dating with Lauren. One, don't tell her they know each other. Two, stay out of each other's way. Three, don't sleep together, or to use Tuck's somewhat charming, I guess, British terminology, no hanky-panky. And four, if it starts to affect their friendship, then they both walk away. Yeah, right. Heinrich, you remember him, right? The guy from the beginning of the film. Well, he's in Savile Row at a tailor's trying to find out about the material his younger brother grabbed off the man who killed him. Heinrich discovers the person who wears this one-of-a-kind suit, because why wouldn't it be, 
lives in LA. So we all know that this is exactly where Heinrich is going to be heading. FDR is waiting at his apartment as he and Tuck are going to be watching a game together. Not sure what sport, but again, I know very little about English sport and know even less about baseball, American football and hockey. But it turns out that Tuck has stood him up. He's on a date with Lauren at Santa Monica Pier and they seem to be having a really good time. Tuck then takes her to the big top. That is what they call the large tent at a circus, I think. Where he persuades her up onto the trapeze. Has no one here heard of health and safety? (laughs) Anyway, after the date, which was rather cute when you ignore the fact that they were on a freaking trapeze. No thank you. Lauren goes home and calls her friend Trish and tells her that she feels weird about dating two guys. Trish is very prosaic about the whole thing and tells her she's only doing what men do all the time. Personally, I have dated a few serial cheaters, but I don't think all men are the same. There are some men out there, including Trish's own husband, who are incredibly loyal and stay faithful to the woman they're with. And women are just as capable as serial cheating. I mean... Lauren's currently dating two men. The next evening, it's time for FDR's first date with Lauren. And Tuck, feeling just a tiny bit threatened as he knows how charming his friend can be, decides to persuade some of his CIA colleagues to help survey the date, to make sure nothing goes on. FDR is being his usual self on the date. Best table at a club, flashy sports car, expensive champagne. And Lauren's not into it. She walks out while he's schmoozing the bartender and he runs after her. She tells him that she's not into all of this, whatever this happens to be, and continues walking. But this just has to be the moment when Steve and his fiance show up yet again. Sensing she's heading into another emotional rollercoaster disaster, she passes FDR off as her surgeon boyfriend And he plays along, telling Steve that he's a paediatric neurosurgeon. Because, of course, why why wouldn't he just be a normal surgeon? He's very good at putting on an act, as it's what he does for her living. Steve is clearly jealous and a little unnerved, especially when FDR mentions that Lauren used to be a gymnast, which makes things exciting. And, of course, his fiancée can't stop looking at FDR. He's pretty dashing in that suit with his hair all 1990s boy band. After the games, FDR asks Lauren out for pizza and finally it seems that he's more human. At work the next day, FDR is less than impressed to find out his date was observed and calls Tuck out, but their discussion is interrupted again by their boss, asking them to find one of Heinrich's men, Ivan Sokolov, as there are rumours that Heinrich is trying to get back into LA via the docks. While they're getting ready for their mission, Tuck proves how far out of the dating game he really is by revealing that things are moving on with Lauren as they have kissed. They both then do what every reasonable human being on the face of the planet would do if they had unlimited resources at their fingertips. They gather small teams together under the guise of finding out more about someone connected to Heinrich's case and get them to research Lauren find out all her interests, her desires, her past, every guy that she slept with in the last 12 months, which if Lauren's dating history is anything to go by will be zero, and everything else that makes her what and who she is. 
they are going to woo her with what they can discover about her. Cheating just a little bit, don't you think? So much for not letting her get between them. Lauren has absolutely no idea that any of this is going on. She's at home getting ready for a night in front of the TV with popcorn and wine, both of which she's gathering together while singing along to This Is How We Do It by Montel Jordan. She's completely oblivious to the fact that while she's wandering around her house in a short sweater, Tuck and FDR are planting bugs and cameras in her personal space. Not sure I would think that this was romantic, to be completely honest. If I were her, I'd be furious when I found out. Of course, you must have heard the saying about how people who eavesdrop rarely hear good things about themselves. So let's see, shall we? Tension is definitely rising at work between Tuck and FDR. They're sitting at their desks playing an overly competitive game of garbage bin basketball when they're told that there is a lead on Sokolov. Heinrich's goon. You remember the guy from the beginning of the film? It turns out he's playing poker in a room behind a strip club because it seems that this isn't a film full of enough cliches. Tuck and FDR start a fight and end up capturing Ivan, who they handcuff to a stripper pole before they take him into custody to question him about Heinrich's whereabouts and his plans. The prisoner in custody, Tuck and FDR discover that Lauren has called her friend Trish so that she can go over her dilemma of dating two men. Some women would like the dilemma of dating just one. Remember what I said literally minutes ago about eavesdroppers never hearing very much good about themselves? Well, they're going to hear some strange home truths that Lauren has made while dating them both. Apparently... FDR has tiny hands, an observation that has Tuck laughing. But the laughter soon fades when Lauren mentions that the issue she has with Tuck is that he's British. She gives herself a week to choose between the two, because what else would a logical woman do? I'll decide in a week. Using all the tools at their disposal, the two men woo Lauren in ways that they are well aware, thanks to their spying, she will really enjoy. Tuck takes her out for a date in a Camaro, which she loves. FDR, of course, has to be there and he spies on them with a drone, which Tuck shoots down. FDR then takes her to see a private storeroom exhibition of her favourite paintings by Klimt. And let me just say here that the kiss is stunning. Tuck invades the date by tapping into FDR's communicator and feeding him interesting facts about how Klimt was part of the finger-painting movement. Lauren also mentioned in her talk with Trish that she thinks FDR is too slick. So he takes her to a dog sanctuary. He gets attacked by the cutest, tiniest dog and then commits to adopting a pet, the oldest dog with the milky eye. Tark is apparently too safe, too sweet and perhaps a little bit boring. So in order to prove that he is none of those things, he takes her to play paintball, where he lets his killer instincts free. He decimates the competition, and then Lauren accidentally shoots him in the balls with her paintball gun. I've been hit with a paintball. It bloody hurts, even through padding. So goodness knows how much that would have hurt without a cup. You did not miss here. I have been paintballing. It was 
brilliant fun. Seriously, it was so much fun. Broke a finger, broke a toe, and I didn't even mind that I came home covered head to foot in paint and mud. And I'm not massively keen on either of them. After the oddly specific dates, Lauren tells Trish she thinks that both the guys are acting really weird. So it's definitely time for the sex tiebreaker. Sex tiebreaker? Really? But remember, the boys have a deal. And point number three very clearly states, no hanky-panky. Are they going to stick to it? Well, let's see. It seems that they aren't going to have much choice. Because (laughs) if one decides to play around, the other's going to be there to stop them. Things are getting hot and heavy for Tuck and Lauren at his apartment after a date when FDR sets off the sprinklers. To be honest, I would have thought that a wet t-shirt would be more enticing than off-putting, but what do I know? I haven't dated for years. FDR is showing Lauren around his apartment. She goes to change in his bathroom. He pours drinks and puts on Smooth Operator by Sade when he gets shot in the neck with a tranquilizer dart. He's just about to pass out on his sofa when he looks across and sees Tuck on the roof of the building opposite. This whole thing isn't affecting their friendship at all because everyone shoots a friend. When they go and question Ivan the next day, both are furious and neither is talking to the other. Ivan tells them that Heinrich is in the country already and he's gunning for both of them. That weekend, FDR takes Lauren to meet his family, especially his nana. She shows Lauren around the family home and tells her all about Franklin, as she calls him, and his parents and his obsession with a Superman cape and how she is the first woman he's ever brought to meet her. It's clear that for FDR, this is actually more serious than he's letting on to Tuck. He drives her home, she invites him in and they end up having sex. The next morning, though, things are awkward. Lauren is acting as though she's the one who has to make the walk of shame. Why? (laughs) She's the one who said that she needed to do a sex tiebreaker, and it's her home. FDR is at home watching Titanic. Seriously, I cannot stomach that blinking song. And how much time is gone? When one of his regular dates arrives... Instead of letting her in, he tells her that he's sorry, but he's met someone. He shuts the door and then returns to the film. At work, FDR and Tuck talk about Lauren. FDR tells his friend that he fell asleep with her. Apparently, this is something that's incredibly unusual for him because he doesn't trust. Tuck is not impressed. The fight isn't over yet. I can't help but feel right here that they should have just been honest with her. Tuck is still fighting dirty. He takes Lauren with him to pick up his son, Joe, from school and they head over to her work where they play test a fire engine which he, Joe, bashes to pieces with a hammer. They test a popcorn machine and some water jets. I think that these are what pass for kitchen tap adapters in the US. I am honestly not sure. That night when Tuck takes Lauren home Things get a little bit hot and heavy and Tuck, who is fully aware that there are bugs throughout her entire house, sets about destroying them so no one can spy on them. Which is something you'd have thought FDR would have done the previous evening given he knew that they were there. But I suppose he was more distracted by the moment than Tuck is. 
He tells Lauren that he's fallen in love with her. When Lauren goes to speak with Trish, this time she's even more confused. She asks if it's possible to love two people. Here, I was surprised and quite relieved that Trish was proving herself to actually be a good friend. She offers some good advice and tells her that you can love many people, but you can only be in love with one. She needs to choose the guy that will make her the better woman, which is exactly what Trish did when she married her husband. Tuck and FDR are at work. Both have decided they no longer want to be partners. Again, what happened to don't let this affect our friendship? Lauren calls Tuck and asks to meet him. So FDR feels disappointed and hurt, I think, because the logical conclusion is that Lauren has chosen to be with Tuck. FDR goes to tell his group of spies that the case is over, there's no need to watch Lauren any longer. And it's at that point that he notices Tuck and Lauren weren't completely alone when they arrived at her house the previous evening. Heinrich was watching them from a car parked in the street. He knows that he has to go and find Lauren and Tuck and warn Tuck that Heinrich is in, is in the city. The couple are at a swanky restaurant having just ordered when FDR arrives. Tuck refuses to listen to him and Lauren goes in the bathroom to call Trish to ask her to come and pick her up. In the main restaurant, Tuck and FDR get into a fight, absolutely destroying the tables and everything, sending guests running for the hills. I am honestly confused as to why nobody called the police because seriously, even flashing a badge showing you were an official of the CIA would not excuse this behaviour, especially as both of them are in the CIA. Lauren comes out of the bathroom and is shocked when she hears FDR and Tuck talking as though they know each other. She asks them if this was some kind of game or bet and having said her piece, she walks away. Outside the restaurant, Lauren gets into Trish's car, which is a bright yellow VW Bug convertible because, of course, that is the kind of car that a woman with a family would drive. But they don't get the chance to drive off as they are hemmed in by Heinrich and his men, who take them hostage. Because they are the perfect bargaining tool. When Tuck gets a call from Lauren, well, yes... You've guessed it, it's not actually Lauren, it's Heinrich using Lauren's phone. He tells Tuck that they need to come and see him alone in San Pedro, and then Lauren and her friend, meaning Trish, will be set free. If they don't show up, then the girls are dead. And so begins a pretty quick car chase. To be completely honest, I actually do enjoy a good car chase in a film, though normally with something just a tad more exciting, then a VW Bug, a Jeep Wrangler, and a Chevy Yukon. FDR, obviously, plays rescuer. He climbs into the other car, a la Keanu Reeves in Speed, knocks out the man in the VW Bug with the two women in it, then transfers Lauren into the Jeep with him and Tuck. Tuck, in the meantime, shoots out the tyres on Trish's Bug, which sends her careening towards a lake. Luckily, For everyone involved, including Trish, her family, she's not hurt. They are then chased to the end of an unfinished road. 
At which point Lauren has realised, through listening to Tuck and FDR's conversation, that they were friends before the whole thing with her and dating started. And very good ones, until she moved into the picture. Though her position in all of this is completely unintentional, again, I can't help asking why they didn't bother telling her the truth. Through her eyes, she's Yoko Ono. Joe and Katie are watching the entire thing played out on their TV because, of course, in this day and age, and pretty much since the 1980s, helicopters watching car chases on motorways, sorry, highways, are a thing. It's then that Katie realises her husband wasn't ever a travel agent and Joe really... Re- <laughs> and Joe realises that his dad can indeed fight. The trio have reached the literal end of the road. They're standing, facing down Heinrich, who is driving at them full speed ahead, when Lauren tells them that, first, that she hadn't actually made her decision when she called Tuck. It seems a bit of a moot point at this stage, really. And also that if they shoot out the front lights on the car that Heinrich is driving, it will deploy the driver's airbag. It seems that her job can be pretty useful, even when out in the field. Tuck and FDR shoot out the lights, the airbag is deployed, and the car rolls. Sending it stupidly, well not stupidly because it can't determine where it's going to go, directly into the trio at the end of the road. As the smoke clears, Lauren has decided on her saviour, and it's FDR. We zoom out of the scene with paramedics, police and the CIA all on site. And fast forward a little bit. Tuck is watching Joe as he's at his karate class and he's killing it. Not literally, because that would be seriously wrong and we're not in battle royale here. Now that the truth is out, Tuck is making moves to reconciliate with his ex, Katie. And he also deals with bully dad in the kind of way he probably wished he could previously. Fast forward a tiny bit more, Tuck and FDR are on a mission. They're in the back of a Chinook flying over somewhere where they need to parachute in. Lauren phones and tells FDR all about the parachute he's using, its safety records and everything else. And as I was watching this, I was thinking, seriously, that's the kind of conversation you're going to have? She then asks him if he's told Tuck yet. It turns out that FDR has asked Lauren to marry him, and of course she said yes. (laughs) It can't just be left there, though, because it wouldn't be a potential sequel filler if it weren't not that there is a sequel feeling that he needs to get rid of his guilt fdr tells tuck that he slept with katie tuck's ex-wife before they met but that's fine as tuck slept with lauren however we discover of course sort of predictably that tuck and lauren never actually slept together When I was doing my research, because it wouldn't be me if I just watched a film and that was it, I discovered that there were actually two alternate endings for this film. They can be found on Vimeo and YouTube if you care enough to do a search. In the first ending, the smoke clears and Lauren is in Tuck's arms. We do the classic fast forward and FDR is alone in his apartment when the doorbell goes and he answers it to find the air stewardess from earlier, Julie, at the door. But this time she's brought a friend with her, Jessica. So, of course, FDR's going to have a little bit of fun and he's still got his Playboy ways. In the second alternate ending, however, and this is one I actually strangely prefer and I'm not quite sure why, the smoke clears and FDR has actually saved Tuck. And over the other side of the road, Lauren is alone. 
there is no fast forward or anything else on this one so you don't un- don't actually get to see if there was any clear ending with regard to Lauren and her relationship with the two guys maybe they all ended up really good friends who knows so what did I think of this film If I ignore all the niggling little issues I keep on finding the more I pick at it, then it's actually fun. It's it's enjoyable, it's got a few laughs, there's a nice little romance. Of course, I have to stop digging and ignore the fact that the two guys bug her house, that FDR doesn't know how to take no for an answer, which I personally don't find an incredibly attractive trait in men, and they both lie to her continually. Okay, I get that they have to lie to her about their jobs because they're in the CIA, they're spies. They can hardly go on a date and say, hey, you've never met me before, but I work for the CIA as a spy and I'm actually hiding out from a maniac serial killer right now. But lying about knowing each other just makes it feel really difficult for me to believe that any woman who is driven by logic first, as Lauren has been shown to be, would forgive either of them for playing a game with her whether they acknowledge that's what it was or not. I prefer Chris Pine in this to Wonder Woman but then that's possibly and probably because I didn't actually like Wonder Woman or WW84 very much at all. It appears though that he is incredibly good at playing a bit of a playboy, expensive suits and watches and lots of beautiful but temporary girlfriends. Tom Hardy is someone I honestly can't say I get the attraction to. I don't know if that's because I rarely look at English actors and think, yum, it's the accent, I guess. Or just because I associate him with the effing and blinding of films by Guy Ritchie and his role as Heathcliff in what I personally consider to be one of the worst books to ever be adapted to the screen. I am so sorry, any Bronte fans out there, but I really cannot stand Wuthering Heights. All that being said, he sort of worked really well as the slightly quieter foil to FDR's exuberance. He was the one to jump all in, go to extremes in order to impress, and at times I think he should have been the one to win Lauren. However, obviously, that wasn't the case. The soundtrack is great. (laughs) Now, this, I'm sure many people will go, what now? It played a part. In fact, some of it is quite cleverly timed, such as when... They accompany Tuck using his CIA skills to defeat everyone when on the paintball date. And you hear How You Like Me Now by The Heavy. Or when FDR is preparing his flat for seduction and puts on Sade's smooth operator. Because that really is him. If you're not looking for a film that has much in the way of meaning, and if I'm honest, that is me most days after work, then this is absolutely ideal. It's a classic rom-com and really does fit the category incredibly well. Overall, it's fun, light-hearted, and you don't come away from it with too many, if any, questions. That said, I did get frustrated when they felt the need to keep Lauren in the dark which is why my favourite ending was one where the two guys ended up together because friendship should be stronger than a relationship with a woman they've only just met. Now we've talked about the film. (laughs) I watched a lot more than just the film this week. But now we've talked about the one I focused on. What are the streaming services looking like like in the UK from the 14th? 
Being honest, there's not actually that much on, but at least one thing is starting that I have been looking forward to for quite a while, and I know I'm not alone in this. You can definitely tell we've got to the middle of the month as there are only a few things actually being uploaded to Netflix. In fact, it's as though they've decided not to make that much effort at all. On Friday the 15th, we have season one of a show called Bling Empire. Not too sure what it's about, as to be honest, the title put me off a little. It reminds me of that awful Coppola film, The Bling Ring, merged with the Terence Howard series Empire. I'm sure it's nothing to do with that at all, but that's what it reminded me of. That is accompanied on the same day by the third season of Disenchantment, the medieval animation. That's always great for a bit of a giggle when I've had a few glasses of wine. Finally, on the 15th, we have Outside the Wire with MCU's Anthony Mackie. I think that this is actually the third film he's done. He did IO, or rather the third thing, because he did IO and Altered, Col- Altered Carbon with them, and that's been the last sort of 18 months. The premise of this reminds me a little of the show with Carl Urban and the gorgeous Michael Ely back in 2013, Almost Human. Have to be honest, that disappointed me. Well, it's cancellation disappointed me, not the series. On the 17th, we have the 2018 film by Joel Edgerton called Boy Erased, based on the 2016 memoir by Gerard Conley. And on the 18th, if you love westerns and have a fascination for Robert Pattinson, then Damsel, which came out in 2018, is definitely something for you. Lastly, on the 20th, there are two things on Netflix. We have the series Daughter from Another Mother, which has a premise very, very similar to ABC's Switched at Birth about two mothers who discover their children were switched in the hospital by accident. And then we have the thriller Sightless, starring Madeline Petch, who was in Riverdale, which is ending this coming year. And also another film I reviewed back in October 2020, Girl vs. Monsters. Amazon is, yet again, proving very difficult to get any information from. But American Gods is back with season three that started on Monday the 11th and episodes are being released every single Monday. And from today, the 14th, This Is Us is also back with new weekly episodes. On the 15th, an Amazon exclusive will be available starring Kingsley Benadir, who... I actually am ashamed to admit I only recognise from Disney's Christmas film Noel, but many may recall from shows like Peaky Blinders or The OA. The film in question is One Night in Miami. Disney Plus, oh this is the one I've been waiting for. On Friday the 15th, the first original Marvel series to be released exclusively on the platform will be available. That's right, WandaVision starts. The episodes are only around 30 minutes or so long and the first two episodes will be released together on Friday with a further eight episodes being released every Friday after that. According to early reviews, things are looking really good. It's apparently really fun, interesting and very different. So I cannot wait. I think I may have to avoid social on Friday so I don't get any spoilers because I have work all day. If you're looking for something else to listen to once this is finished, then, oh boy, I've got a new promo for you. This is the Hush Hush Society. If you're interested in conspiracy theories, this is one to listen to. 
Greetings, I'm Declassified Dave. I'm Mystery Mike. I'm Slick Frank Sanders. Join us on the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour Mondays, where we look into the dark secrets of the conspiratorial world. We'll explore the likes of government cover-ups, the existence of otherworldly beings, unexplained phenomena, and cryptids. We tackle these topics with an open mind, a sense of humor, and dapper drippage. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and listen on all podcast platforms. This week's book is one that I read at the end of last year, which means it's another of the light-hearted fun books that I always read at the start and end of my year to bookend it. <laughs> See what I did there? My Goodreads Annual Challenge. Wow, I had a very strange pause on that one. This book was published in 2009 and, purely by coincidence, has the same title as a Jennifer Aniston film from 2005, Rumour Has It. Tilly Cole has just been dumped. She got home from work to find that half of everything in the flat she shared with her boyfriend Gavin was gone, and it wasn't because they'd been robbed. It seems that Gavin, with the help of his parents, decided to leave. There's a note, but no sign beforehand that there was any issue, at least on his part. Knowing that she can't afford the rent on her own, though that's a problem for later, Tilly goes to stay with a friend from university, Erin, for a few days to process everything that has happened. Not that she's actually crying, something that Erin does point out. Well, if you really cared about him, you'd have cried about the separation. And that's how she ends up in Roxburgh, at least for the weekend. While in the small town, she has an encounter with a jerk whose car she accidentally landed on when she decided to play drunk leapfrog. He then purposely drives past and splashes her with muddy water from a large puddle as he drives by in his large jag. As she's on her way back to London, well, she's at the train station, she realises that she doesn't want to be there any longer and applies for a rather intriguing housekeeper-come-assistant job she found in the local newspaper. She applies for it that instant and has an interview almost immediately, though she does have to... Get used to the fact that Roxborough is no London and there's no such thing as Uber and there are no such things as taxis waiting outside the train station as soon as the train arrives. Seriously, the quickest job application interview and acceptance process I have ever seen. I honestly wish that things were that straightforward. I think I applied for my most recent job and it took six weeks from application to interview, let alone everything else that happened in between. The job is working for local interior decorator and designer Max Deneen. He needs someone to help him with his business and around the house looking after his teenage daughter Lou who attends local school and needs collecting and dropping off every day. So what is this story really about? It is about Tilly but as with every single book by a large number of the authors I read, Jill Mansell, Page Toon, Katie Ford, the extra characters aren't really extra to the story. They all have something else going on. As we've already mentioned, Erin is Tilly's best friend. She owns a local dress shop that is actually catering to people. It's not a charity shop, but it's where people bring their older clothes, so designer, mostly designer clothing, and they are then sold. And she has just become involved with a man called Fergus who is in the process of 
getting a divorce from his incredibly pushy, incredibly determined wife, Stella. Fergus is incredibly intimidated by her. Stella is, she's a Regina George almost. She's the one who everybody looks up to. However, Stella desperately wants a baby. She was hoping that she'd have one with her husband, but it never happened. And then Stella goes to have a checkup and it is discovered that Stella has an incredibly violent form of cancer that is going to, there is no cure, there is no treatment that can be done. It is just palliative care that is available. Then there's Kay, Max's ex-wife. She's an actress based initially in Hollywood, starring in a soap opera called Over the Rainbow. However, she gets involved in a scandal courtesy of her boss Denzel's very jealous bimbet wife Charlene and ends up coming back to the UK and making a home for herself there so she can spend more time with her and Max's daughter Lou. The reason why Max and Kay ended up getting divorced was because Max discovered he was gay and he didn't want to live a lie any longer. Obviously, Kay actually accepts it incredibly well. She moved on with her life. Lou is incredibly well balanced. She's incredibly protective of her dad and that gets her in quite a lot of trouble at school. But it has no detrimental effect on Kay and Max's relationship or Kay and Max's relationship with their daughter. Declan is the local pub landlord and he's the one who initially goads Tilly into looking at the local newspaper where she finds the job that she ends up having working for Max. Then we have Jack Lucas. He's the town playboy. I must have had a thing for playboys when I was reading this because of course it came, <laughs> it was on at the same time as I was watching this means war. So there's a Playboy thing. However, he has an incredibly tragic backstory. He was engaged to a young woman called Rose, who he'd fallen madly in love with and been with for several years. They'd bought a house together and she was pregnant with their child when she went to visit her family. And unfortunately, she saw the family dog was in difficulty in the water, went to rescue it, managed to save the dog and in the process drowned. So there is a story behind his behaviour. However, it doesn't excuse a lot of it, though you do find out justification at the end. Overall, the number of characters in this book isn't off-putting. Sometimes you'll look at a character list and think, why are there 30 or 40 characters? There are some characters in Rumour Has It that you think, well, didn't really need to know a name for that person. But at the same time, in a small town... Everybody has an identity, everybody has a character, and most people will know to say hi. The dogs are given names, even the dog that doesn't last five seconds in the book is given a name, Baby Lamb. And of course, Max has got a dog called Betty. You get to know a lot about Betty. Betty is actually at the centre of Tilly and Lucas having a conversation about why she isn't interested in dating him. Of course, you see where the story is going to go from the very beginning. However, the whole story is how you get there. 
And that is what I love about Rumour Has It and most of the other books by Jill Mansell, to be fair. There isn't just a straightforward, oh, there's a twist in the tale and that's it. So many things happen to the characters. As I mentioned, Stella is one of the tragic characters of the book, but she starts off being somebody that you just want to punch in the face because she is spiteful, destructive. The moment she realises that her husband, who she's separated from because he's left her, is seeing Erin, she sets about destroying Erin's business, her livelihood. Oh, you've taken something from me, therefore I'm going to destroy your life. And that is legitimately what she says to her. And then at the end of everything, Erin is the one who's holding her hand as she dies. And you just think, how did we get here from that? If you'd skipped all of the story that came in between, it would have been, what now? But they hated each other. Erin doesn't hate anybody. She is so compassionate. Her mother died after she'd nursed her for several years. She has got no vindictive bones in her body. She is incredibly feeling, emotive, and that's probably what Fergus saw in her in the first place. And she ends up being the person that Stella can rely on. But this story isn't all about her. It's also about, in fact, it's mostly about Tilly, who is the central protagonist. But you can see why Tilly and Erin are friends. You can understand, if you read the book, you can see how the relationship between Jack and Tilly develops and how there are so many misunderstandings that aren't so, oh, really, for goodness sake, another stupid misunderstanding. It's not like that. And I love the book because it's not like that. This was a reread and the first time, I have to be honest, the first time I read it, I didn't enjoy it very much. I think I gave it three stars and uh, this really dragged. However, the second time, which was only at the end of last year that I read it, I realised that I had probably been reading it through so fast that I missed a lot of the tension, the emotions, the intent, the intention on the page. And I enjoyed it far more. <laughs> Stella's death had me crying. The stories about Jack and Rose. Wow, I've just realised Jack and Rose, Titanic. They're not the, that Jack and Rose. I just, I, <laughs> I've only just realised the connection. Wow, that was slow of me. But the story of Jack and Rose is really moving. And Tilly's inability to hold down a long-term relationship without starting to have doubts is also brought up several times. Would I recommend this book? If you like romance, you like uh, the occasional tear, you like to laugh, and this book is easily obtainable in bookshops, at the library, on Kindle, probably on Nook, then definitely go and read it. If you like Jill Mansell's books, read it if you haven't done so already. Again, that is Rumour Has It from 2009. I'm not sure which number book it is by Jill Mansell and I'm not sure which number book it is by her that I've read. However, it is one of them. Just go read it. Okay, we've now reached the most important part of the episode. 
or rather the part of the episode that I dread the most, the mental health update. This week has been odd, to say the least. I've had a lot of stresses at work that were not through my own making. I've had a lot of frustrations with scheduling, with organising myself. I've had a lot of problems with getting myself motivated more than anything. Not only getting up in the morning and heading to work, but also sitting down at my desk, talking into my microphone, writing a script. Even though I've watched This Means War a couple of times this week, it still took me until the end of the second time to say, oh, come on, you lazy girl. Get your finger out. Write that script. It's not hard. But every single time I told myself that, it was like, I just want to watch. I want to read. I want to do this. I want to do that. And have I done any of that? Nope. So motivation has been my key issue this week. I am still doing the meditation. It is helping so much with stupid little things that normally really grate on my nerves. Somebody said something to me today, in fact, and my initial thought was, I'm going to scream. I took a step away from my desk centred myself, took a few deep breaths, told myself that it wasn't me that had the problem, it was them. Told myself that several times and I felt better. It's not always going to work. In fact, it won't always work for me and it probably won't always work for anyone else that does it. And it might not work for you at all, but it is starting to make me analyse and look more carefully at what does annoy me. Are the things that annoy me things that I've done? Are the things that annoy me things that I have control over? If the answer to those things is no, then I need to just go, I can't do anything about this. I can't change the way somebody else thinks. I can't change the fact that my mum and I don't always get on. I can't change the fact that when my mum looks at me, it's with more disappointment than pride. I can't change the past. I can't travel back in time. I suppose I should be saying, I can't travel back in time to when I was 12 years old and told my mum that I hated what she'd done and I really wished that... Oh God, that sounds so awful. But I do remember saying... I wish that you'd died instead of dad. To be fair, I was 12. I was grieving and I was much closer to my dad than I am my mum. But that doesn't make it the right thing to say. So if you are a teenager listening to this, please don't ever say that to your parents. It's not the best thing. In fact, it's not a good thing at all. However, I can't change that I said that. That's probably something that's still in her head somewhere. It's still in mine. I can't change the fact that when I was 18 years old and I said to my mum, either you choose your boyfriend who beats us up or you choose me. And she chose the boyfriend. Which started my journey out of the home. Wow, that got deep really fast. I guess what I'm saying is, 
the only person you have control over, and sometimes not even that, is yourself. You can't control how other people think. You can't control how other people feel. All you can do is center yourself. And though it's hard, and it really is hard, don't focus on how they feel about you. Because all you can do is control how you react to how they feel about you. They don't like you, walk away. Don't hang around and let them abuse you and make you belittle you and make you feel awful and worthless. Because that's exhausting, it's unhealthy, and over time the only person who's going to be damaged by it is you. And ultimately you are, to you, the most important person because without your own mental health what hope do you have of helping anybody else wow I did not mean for that to be quite that deep I guess this is the end of this week's episode (laughs) so if you've stayed this long thank you I release a new episode every week so if you like what you hear why not share it with your friends and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes or Podchaser. You can follow me over on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs. I'm also on Instagram at Ray's Reading Room. That's R-A-Y-E. I update on both as often as I can. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely haven't had enough and I've exhausted myself emotionally. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.